Hi, and welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Andre Mardo. So this is the very first full episode of the podcast. I won't do too much of an intro to the podcast as a whole because there's an entire five or six minutes episode dedicated to that. But as far as this episode is concerned, its purpose is to mostly frame the discussions that will follow in future episodes. It explores the question of whether the conservation message is getting through, and if not, then why not? My guest was Tim Hirsch, who joined me from Copenhagen. Tim has had a diverse career, including almost two decades at the BBC, and he's currently Deputy Director of the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, or GBIF, which we discuss at some length. A question that um, I'd like to start off with, with all future guests, and which I'm particularly interested to ask you, knowing a little bit about your history, is how you got involved in conservation in the first place. And maybe sort of a second part to that question would be how you ended up where you are now. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's kind of a long story, <laughs> and maybe a slightly unusual one in terms of my career path. My background is certainly not in conservation. It's not in science. It's not, it's not in technology, and somehow I've ended up uh, associated with all of those things. Uh, so I, I was originally a history graduate, studied history uh, in Cambridge University in the UK. And really, my, my main first career was in journalism. So after university, I joined a, a regional newspaper group and ended up working for 19 years at the BBC. To start with, just as a general general reporter, I did some political reporting, so not, not, not particularly... Uh, concerned with environmental issues. Uh, and then towards the end of my time at the BBC, I happened to drift towards environmental journalism. So I was an environment correspondent there for a while, but covering a pretty very broad range of everything from climate change to biodiversity, pollution, and in fact, farming as well, and agriculture, animal diseases. You know, it was a very broad brief. <laughs> uh, and then as sometimes happens, I think, with journalists, once you become specialized in an area, you get more and more interested in that area and it's almost like your interest in the subject starts to overtake your interest in journalism as a profession. So I've done a bit of a transition and uh, left the BBC and became a freelance for a while, actually based in Brazil, uh, where I was doing more specialist communication on particularly on, on biodiversity issues, as it turned out by that point. From there, I started um, doing some consultancy communication work with various groups, including initially the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment that came out in, uh, in 2005, and then subsequently the, uh, the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity. That sort of took me more into the biodiversity policy area, and then happened to uh, move into my present job at uh, GBIF, Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which I guess we'll talk about more. So that's, that's a kind of a, a short version of my um, somewhat unconventional career path. So you made the, the transition within your BBC career from uh, non-environmental to environmental issues, more or less by chance? I mean, you said you sort of drifted from, from one into the other. <laughs> Almost by chance. I mean, I, I guess it, it, it exposed an underlying interest that I had. But uh, for a while, I was reporting from Wales, actually, and 
and it, I, I ended up doing quite a few environment-linked stories. And then a job, literally a job came up at that stage as an environment correspondent, and I went for it and I got it. So it was it was, uh, it was out of choice, but not something that I had always planned, planned to do. So it was a, a bit of a drift in that direction in my career rather than something that I started out thinking I would be doing. Having said that, you know, as a lot of us ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated by, uh, by natural history and, you know, loved my dinosaur books and that kind of thing. So there was always, there was always an interest there. And the current work at uh, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, that's been about 10 years now already. Uh, yeah, I joined in mid-2011. Uh, and initially I came in as program officer for uh, engagement, pretty much uh, the communication side. So that, that was really the specialism that I came with was the communication rather than anything to do with the, the dom- domain um, I was working in. So it was, uh, it was leading communications in, in this organization whose specialist area is around bringing together open data uh, relating to biodiversity. That was going to be my next question, really, is, is what, what GBIF is and what GBIF does. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. GBIF, as you say, stands for Global Biodiversity Information Facility. It's actually a, a cooperation between governments. So it's although it's not part of the UN system, our participants as a, um, as a collaboration are governments and, and uh, international organizations. And it started in 2001. And the idea of GBIF is bringing together the huge range of data and evidence that exists and having been built up literally over centuries about where species live and have lived, and obviously a lot of associated information with that. And that evidence is often, it's there in the sense that that basic information has been gathered by someone somewhere, but it's hugely disconnected because that can be anything from the huge amount of evidence that's sitting in museums around the world, literally locked up in museum drawers and often inaccessible unless you happen to know where it is. Uh, naturalists have been out in the tropics collecting insects for more than 300 years, and they have very methodically brought them back, pinned those insects, preserved them, and there'll be a label which says, this is the name of the species, as it was at least described then, uh, and this was the location and this is the data I collected it. And there'll be an image associated with at least that specimen in that drawer and the label. But at the same time, if you go out in your garden and you take a picture with your smartphone of some species in your backyard, you're answering the same questions. You're saying, ultimately, that evidence you have on your smartphone is this particular species was there at that time. So really what GBIF does is it, brings together that mass of evidence, and I've just given two examples, specimens, individual observers, but you also have scientific surveys, evidence that's come that, that you can extract out of literature from all the uh, scientific articles and books. If you can express that information in standardized formats, then you can go to one place in the discovery portal, such as the one that, uh, that, that GBIF provides at gbif.org, all of it then becomes freely available. Can you give the listeners some sense of what the numbers are involved of entries and the number of species uh, gathered in the database? I mean, not not exactly, but uh, just to get an idea of the order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. So 
at the moment, we have just over 1.5 billion species occurrence records. So that each one of those is a record for the occurrence of a species in space and time. So it, each of those might would refer typically to one organism, in other words, a named species, with information about how it was observed or collected. In terms of the, the number of species it, it covers, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of one of those questions, which, again, sounds easy, it's a slightly complicated answer, because there are all sorts of issues around taxonomy, how species are named and brought together changes over time. So there's lots of, lots of detail around that question, but it's, it's, all, it's somewhere in the region of 1.6 million species has at least one uh, record of the kind that, that, that I've described. And that's, and that's coming to us from currently we, we have over 1,600 1, uh, institutions in different parts of the world who are actively sharing data sets into, into GBIF. That data, that mass of data, isn't coming to us all as individual, simply as individual records. One institution might be said serving us several million uh, individual records. Just for a bit of context, the, the figure for the estimated total number of species in the world at the moment from a, a recent paper, uh, which I think said eight or eight and a half million species. So 1.6 is a very substantial proportion of that. And, and also to, to add to that, that uh, only a small portion of that eight point something is actually described in the first place. For now, perhaps we should transition onto the main topic, which is the communication of biodiversity. And of course, the work of GBIF is very relevant there, but we'd like to sort of zoom out of it and, and uh, talk about that more generally. But before I ask the, the first question specific to that, I think that you know all, all people in the field of conservation uh, consider biodiversity and the conservation of biodiversity to be an issue of global significance. And by that, I mean an issue which sort of belongs up there, you know, on the news next to climate change and, and degradation and uh, even hunger and poverty and, and uh, you know, these sort of uh, major issues of our time. So I just wanted to get your kind of um, aerial view of, of where you think biodiversity belongs in the global discussion and, and uh, perhaps a good lead into the discussion about communication, because assuming that biodiversity is not not where it needs to be on that stage, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about why it's not there. Yeah. So I'm mean, the question of, you know, does it, does it belong there? Well, yes, I think yes, uh, it is. I mean, but you could say it's there for different kinds of reasons. And it depends on, you know, what is it that makes us feel that an issue is of global importance? If you just taking it in terms of if you stand back and think, you know, what do we as human beings think of as being important issues? Uh, ultimately, that's a, that's a judgment that's based on your own values. And you simply have to say to someone, does it matter to you that we have, since 1970, lost something like two-thirds of the populations of wild animals? Some people will say, well, I don't know why that matters. Others will say that is absolutely horrific, right? So your reaction to, and of course, there are many others uh, relating to the move towards global extinctions or even local extinctions, where the response to that, in part, will depend on your own values and 
whether you think that that is important and makes it as important as other issues relating to to human survival. But there's another way of looking at it, which is looking at why that loss of diversity, biodiversity, is important for all of the same reasons that other issues of human survival are, in, are important. And that's where a lot of the, I think, the biodiversity debate has, has and, and, and science has gone recently around looking at the linkages between uh, loss of biodiversity and you know, different components and then what's coming back to people uh, in terms of benefits, whether it's economic or survival benefits or cultural benefits or aesthetic and mental health benefits. You know, so and on that side, I think equally you you can uh, we can we can show pretty convincingly that what's happened already and where things are going with biodiversity is so closely interlinked with many of these other issues that you can't really separate it. So, I mean, if you just take something, let's say climate change and food security, the linkages between biodiversity, climate change and food security are all so closely interlinked that, that I think that in itself pushes biodiversity up to be uh, an issue of global importance, uh, regardless of that you know, broader question of whether we are uh, and should be horrified by what's happening to, to biodiversity in its own right. Going back to some of your past experience as an environmental correspondent, how did biodiversity feature among the other environmental issues there? And, and as a proportion of, of airtime and also as a, as a means of stimulating viewer numbers? So, yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is it's going back a bit. So uh, we're talking about sort of ancient history and I, I stopped, uh, stopped doing that in about 2006. But and so I, you know, I, can't, I can't give you uh, uh, precise numbers in, in terms of airtime. But I think as an issue, if we're talking about, you know, sort of the big issues around biodiversity, it, it wasn't very prominent. Uh, if you compare it, for example, the stories I was doing on climate change and going to the Kyoto conference and all that, all that kind of stuff, and even compared, certainly compared with the agriculture stories I was doing and uh, around, you know, agricultural policy and even around, you know, pollution issues, I think biodiversity was not was not very prominent. Having said that, there were quite a few of the, the, the stories which, you know, we would broadly regard as human interest stories, which often were, were about conservation, were about species survival, but typically would, were not necessarily, weren't represented as being part of the biodiversity issue. So probably if you analyze, you know, the stories I was doing, there were quite a few that you could say were were directly connected with biodiversity, but I think it's fair to say that I was not covering biodiversity as a as a global issue in anything like the same the same level that I was for, for example, climate change and and, and agriculture. Yeah, I think that's that's very often. I mean, I guess the, the reason why the the word biodiversity was coined in the first place uh, was as a means of expressing the importance of that side of nature, you know, the fact that it is so incredibly diverse and we're talking about eight point something million species. 
Um, and yet, uh, what makes the headlines is very often, you know, about a, s a specific species or even a specific population or individual. Um, and uh, I'm reminded of, uh, I don't know if you remember the Cecil the lion debate a couple of years ago. There was a, there was a lion that was shot somewhere in Africa by a dentist from somewhere in the US, I think, and created a huge uproar. So an individual animal. And at yeah. the same time, you know, the black rhino was being... Uh, poached uh, into near extinction. It's actually one of the um, failures that's been attached to conservation communication as a whole. One of the reasons for the, uh, the failure to perhaps get where we'd like to, to get is this idea of, of uh, what's being termed compassion fade. People were surveyed and were found to be willing to, to donate more to uh, a cause where you know there was the face of a particular person in trouble rather than an entire community or, a, or an entire country. But more generally speaking, my assumption is that there is a, a communication problem with biodiversity. We have a, a very good product, but um, it doesn't seem to be as high on the global stage as, as it needs to be. Uh, and you know, species are going extinct at a, at a fairly rapid rate. And at the same time, uh, people are generally not very aware of what biodiversity is in the first place. Uh, and very often, kind of quite well-educated people. Do you do you agree that we're failing in communicating, or do you think that we're getting better? It's certainly true that if you compare it, and often people do make this comparison with with climate change, for example, the communication of biodiversity as an issue does lag far behind. But I think sometimes we in this sector will, will sometimes, I think, almost you know, exaggerate that shortfall because we're always looking for the communication, the understanding to be on our terms. In other words, relating to the biodiversity issue. I think that when you dig deeper into it and you look at what people do understand and do care about, it often ranges pretty widely, I think, over the biodiversity landscape. Um, it's just not obviously there. And I mean, and I'll give maybe two, two examples, both in relation to, to climate change, actually. One, and I, I remember making this point ages and ages ago, if you think of what's one of the most iconic images to reflect climate change, which incidentally is really difficult to see climate change. It's an image of a polar bear stuck on this isolated piece of ice surrounded by lots of, one assumes, melt, recently melted uh, ice in, and, and a mass of ocean. And so to express that and get to people's hearts in terms of the impact of climate change, they're actually using an issue which is about biodiversity, the polar bear extinction risk. And then bringing it more recently, I think when you look at uh, a lot of the, 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 the protests that were taking place, and it seems a long time ago now with COVID, but uh, all of the, 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 the Greta Thunberg-inspired uh, protests that were going on around the world, and that whole movement was actually, in, which was termed Extinction Rebellion, although we, and, and I say, I mean, actually the media has tended to always frame that in terms of the issue of climate change, just the very term, <laughs> demonstrates that actually mixed in with a lot of what people and younger people are concerned with, there is a huge amount that relates to biodiversity as well. But what is also true is that often when you hear 
the concerns expressed, there is often a, a, a conflation of a mixing up of concerns about biodiversity, which then somehow come under the umbrella, uh, the umbrella of climate change. Mm. And, you know, actually, there's nothing wrong with that, because the fact is that there is a huge connection. And it is true that if we want to deal with issues of biodiversity loss, then as a start, we have to get climate change right. So people are not wrong at all to make those connections and and, and almost see biodiversity issues as, as being a subset of, of what is often given the shorthand of climate concern. Now, of course, you know, the fact is that there are many other aspects to biodiversity that it's, it's essential to be aware of. But even there, I think, again, if, you know, where people are, are really looking at, uh, at diets and the, and, and the use of land, deforestation, often maybe it starts out in the, in the climate context. But as we know, that, that is also connected with the major drivers of biodiversity loss. So I guess <laughs> what I'm getting to, I suppose, is, yes, I do agree that, that the issue of a lot of the issues of biodiversity have not come into the mainstream of, of public debate in the same way that, that other issues have. But I think there's actually, we can see from the concerns that people express that there is massive potential and, and I think actually growing trend for biodiversity concerns to be mixed up in all that, even if it's not expressed as, uh, as specifically in the biodiversity agenda. Can you think of any examples where uh, an understanding of biodiversity and conservation is more closely linked to some of the more tangible aspects of, of human well-being, like, uh, you know, where our food comes from and, uh, and our water comes from and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I think there are, there are, I think there are a few. And I th but I think, I think it's, it's also fair to say, and maybe, you know, this is an important contrast with climate change, that um, whereas climate change, you, you can say it's, it's easy to see it as a planetary issue because there are one or two metrics, like, you know, what is the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? What is the level of uh, emissions of hydrocarbon fuels? You know, the, we, you can put those together and, and link the, the problems with the outcomes and the solutions. In a, oh, I, there's massive complications clearly in the, uh, in, even in, in, in climate change. But with biodiversity, there's, that's even more challenging because the fact is that the impacts of biodiversity loss are, are just almost infinite because of the different uh, very often very localized impacts that they may have. But I, do th I think that there are examples. I mean, let, maybe let's take the, the example of, of coral reef decline. And it's also obviously very closely linked with, with climate change through the bleaching of corals through higher sea temperatures and also the impacts of the acidification of the oceans. But there's clearly you know, an absolutely direct link there with, with biodiversity. And I think even if people have only ever seen them on uh, a David Attenborough documentary, I think people do understand and do care about the, you know, the extraordinary diversity of life that coral reefs support. I think you, you then also got a very practical link between what coral reefs provide through a combination of tourism income and the massive, massive, massive amount of, of uh, food and livelihoods that depend on, uh, on, on coral reefs. So you can see the connection with, with people there. 
And it's also, I mean, I think it's a, it's in a sense, it's a, it's a good example to help bring these things together because you can see, or we can show that the impacts on on coral reefs are a whole range of different factors. So, you know, some of which are, are kind of more directly in our control than others. So, I mean, climate change is obviously it's a long-term impact, but we also know that the impacts of uh, overfishing have a, a, a big, big effect on on coral reefs. Uh, the impact of pollution through nutrients coming out, including, let's say, from, from cruise ships and even what's happening inland with deforestation and the, the sediments that are carried from rivers and, and, and overwhelm coral reefs. There are all, all of these different kind of impacts where you can, you can see a link. And I think people can, you know, pretty quickly get that. And it's something that you can care about even if you don't live next to a coral reef. Mm-hmm. Right? So that, that would just be one example. But, and, but I think there are quite a, there's, there's, there's quite a few others where uh, it's it's not as difficult sometimes as we think to make that communication about why taking pressure off biodiversity uh, is is uh, is you know important for all of it. I guess that part of what I'm sort of hung up on uh, in terms of my my assertion that there is a communication problem is that I often speak to people who are. Or have a very similar background to what I do. They've been lucky enough to get a good education, and you know they, they're in a position of uh, relative uh, influence. You know they can they can contribute to the literature, and then other people who I'm, I might not know that well, but who I think about uh, people who are in a real position of of influence. You know, uh, wealthy. You know, doing well in business and obviously uh, in politics as well. Um, and it seems like in those realms, biodiversity and conservation ranks pretty low. Uh, would you would you agree that with the right kind of work we could get it higher up on those agendas? Uh, yeah, uh, often in uh, among groups you you would expect to be better informed or or, or have, have be more conscious about this. It, it it is often very low down in the uh, in the hierarchy of concerns. So I can put it that way. But I think I think we have the tools, and I think that we have made progress in. Again, depending on your audience, being able to to um, to correct that. And one example, I guess I would say, just if you're looking at it very much in a kind of business sense as a, a risk concern, you know, things have moved pretty dramatically in relatively recent past. With, for example, the World Economic Forum, you know, highlighting biodiversity loss as a, you know a a major global risk uh, to be concerned about. And you know, sure that the mainstreaming, as it's called, of that is 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 still still got a huge amount of work to do. But I think that if that's the the, the kind of route into bringing this into the consciousness of you know at least some groups, uh, I think there's a lot to now work with to be able to get those messages across. And the same is true, I would say, you know, for other priorities as well. Just sort of sticking to the problem side of things for for a bit longer. Uh, you and I spoke uh, before the podcast a while ago about a chapter in a book that I had uh, come across: "Effective Conservation Science: Data, Not Dogma." There's a chapter there on why we are not uh, effectively communicating conservation, and the authors they listed five reasons that, according to them, were the were the ones for this problem. And I just wanted to go through those quickly, and and then maybe just to ask you whether you think whether you think these are all well founded, or any of them are, are a bit of an overstatement or or an understatement. Uh, one of them we've mentioned already, which is the, this idea of of compassion fade, that uh, people. 
according to the psychology literature, people respond very often better to the face of an individual person or an individual animal rather than uh, the idea of an entire species or an entire continent full of species or whatever it may be. Uh, so that's one. And then another one is, um, which I found quite interesting, was that we as conservationists, according to the authors, assume that there's a lack of information, that people need more information, whereas actually there's plenty of information out there. It's, it's really more a case of how that information is, uh, is sort of brought across. Any comments on those two? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it, they, they are basic facts of, of communication that, that it's, it's uh, absolutely indisputable that once you frame issues and problems at a sort of a huge macro scale, it's much more difficult for all of us, any individual, to really connect with it um, in, a, in a direct why should I care mm. sense compared with something which is smaller, more manageable and tangible and, and I care about. Uh, having said that, I think, I think that is, that's largely just that is a question of communication skill. There are perfectly good ways of doing the two things together. And so you bring concern for, about a public issue in kind of formats and stories that through illustration will enable any, anyone to, to get it and care about it. So I, I don't think those things are in it doesn't necessarily mean you have to, you know, dumb down and only talk about Cedric the Lion or whatever, mm. as opposed to the broader issue. So I think that's just a, a kind of fact of life of, uh, of communication. On the question of do we need more information, again, it, that's, I'm sure that's true, that it's not, it's not purely the volume of information and it is the, the way in which uh, that information is packaged and communicated mm. is important. But having said that, from the science and the policy sense, we still do lack a lot of the basic information, or at least it's not there in forms that can be that can be put to use. I think it's slightly dangerous sometimes. In the, like you do sometimes hear this, people say, "Oh, we don't. What's the point of collecting more evidence because we've already got enough?" Well, yeah, we have got lots of evidence, but the fact is, to keep that evidence up to date and meaningful, you have to keep collecting it, mm -hmm. right? But I do agree that, like you could say, it's not primarily a question of the amount of information in terms of communication. It's it's how you. Uh, put it across to appropriately to different audiences. One of the others is uh, the assumption, uh, the mistaken assumption in the view of the authors that fear is a good motivator. And I think that's that's not just about biodiversity, maybe more, more climate change perhaps than, than biodiversity. But I think certainly that mechanism is used a lot uh, in, uh, in biodiversity and in conservation. And I'm not sure about you, but as an individual, um, I found myself getting quite jaded by messages of, of doom and gloom. Yeah, and, and I think it's always, it's a very kind of delicate balance because the fact is when you look at the big overall macro trends, they have been sliding in the wrong direction and it's almost like, yeah, you understand it's fatigue because you keep saying the same thing over and over, frankly. Uh, however, the fact is that when you look at what's been going on in the last 10, 20 years, there, there is a lot of extremely positive evidence there. People have done things that really work. And I mean, just as an example, you know, there's, there's research uh, which is just coming out that shows that in the absence of conservation measures that have taken place just in the last 10 years, we would probably would have seen between two and four times the number of birds and mammals having gone extinct. Now, you know, the fact is that uh, too many uh, species are heading towards extinction. But 
it's really important, I think, that we are able to communicate the tremendous benefits that have been brought about by, by conservation measures, for example, by uh, eradicating invasive alien species from islands. And, and in all sorts of other areas, we can see, frankly, we are using resources more efficiently now than we used to in terms of uh, uh, energy and, 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 and inputs. A lot of countries are starting to look at uh, how to account economically for um, environmental and biodiversity impacts in a way which they weren't doing recently. So there is lots of positive progress that we can report and we should communicate, but we just need to do it in a way that also says, but it's still not enough because the trends are still going in the wrong direction. I think that people um, are more likely to be interested in something when they feel that they have some degree of control over it and even some degree of ownership over it. You know, they feel like they're kind of taking part. They're not just the recipients of, of news, but they're part of the of the solution. Um, and it is it is really good to to see some of the uh, the progress that's that's been made. Um, I'll just very quickly mention the other two of the five points made by the authors, but perhaps I can just skim over them. One is the assumption that we have been uh, on the sort of harm and care model for, for some time, whereas other people might be, uh, you know, their values might be more based on purity or authority or, or loyalty, depending on their cultural context, perhaps more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, the, the last one is quite similar to the compassion fade uh, issue that we've mentioned a couple of times, and that is psychological distance. The idea is that uh, conservation is not thought of as that important if people think about it as being something for future generations or faraway places. And I think when I worked uh, for, for many years actually in uh, urban biodiversity and uh, the, the work of subnational governments, this came up quite a lot because in, uh, when was it, 2007, I believe, or somewhere around there when I was doing that work anyway, that was when the world officially became more urban than, than rural. And uh, one of the points that we very often made was that this means that people are more removed than ever from nature and therefore, you know, less likely to think about it and to, to care about it. Yeah, I'm just maybe, maybe just picking up on the last one because I think it's, it's, yeah, it's a really interesting point and, and it, it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine is that, I, I, in a sense, a good example of this is when you look at a typical wildlife documentary you can go through hundreds of hours of beautiful, beautiful wildlife films and never see any impacts of humans or never see any evidence of humans, rather. And it's almost like there's this fantastic world that exists, but somehow in, a, in, a, in, a, in, some, in some parallel universe that doesn't have any link with what we see around us. And I mean, you know, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that because the fact is that wildlife documentaries have done a fantastic amount to make people care about wildlife. But sometimes it, it can almost be dishonest in the sense that the reality is that a lot of those sequences will be filmed in an environment where there's been a lot of uh, uh, human influence. But, uh, you know, what's focused on is this pure interaction of nature as if, as if people weren't there. And I think, you know, bringing urban biodiversity is really important. Uh, in this context, because the fact is that, you know, biodiversity does not end at the, at the city limits. Um, and there's a fast, fantastic amount that people can experience just going around their local park or in their garden, particularly if you, you know, encourage people to look really closely at what's going on at a, a, at a micro level. It's really important, I think, for us to start to break down that, that barrier and show both the importance of 
and the benefits of of having a, a, a diverse urban ecosystems just in terms of quality of life and, and both physical and mental health, but then also showing the, the connections between what people are doing and consuming in cities and then what, what happens in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the wider environment. GBIF does or, or gets quite a lot of its data from cities, right, and from citizen science in cities. Am I making uh, too much of an assumption there, or how much of a role the, does uh, does the average city dweller have the potential to play in in, in contributing uh, species data to the the, the GBIF cause? Well, I mean, I can't give you a, a specific analysis of you know how much of what's in GBIF comes from urban or non-urban. Uh, environments. But what I can say is that broadly, evidence that's coming in through citizen science of some description is a huge amount of what you see in GBIV. And that's through platforms such as I already mentioned uh, uh, eBird earlier on, which is a very large uh, uh, database that's from volunteer bird bird observers around the world. iNaturalist, iNaturalist.org is an increasingly popular and very versatile platform dealing with any kind of of species whereby anyone can set up a, a project and put their their sightings into a central platform, which once it passed a, a, a minimum validation step and then is described as being research-grade data, is it automatically exported into GBIF. So certainly our estimate is that at least half and probably somewhat more than half of what's in GBIF is, is from citizen science of some description so it's a it's a hugely important part of the uh, of the evidence that's that's coming in and is therefore then available for research and uh, and policy and, des- and decisions uh, afterwards but then yeah or, or citizens anywhere in rural environments or on holiday or or expeditions can also do the same do you think that citizen science has has improved conservation communication uh, do you think that it's, or do you think that it's just people who are already interested in conservation who take part in citizen science? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I you know, the short answer is I, is I do think yes. Now, how far that that has extended interests? Yeah, I, I would want to do a more, see a more detailed study. But I think it's definitely true that particularly with some of these easy platforms, you can quickly get people hooked and somewhat obsessed in. Um, uh, I mean, you know, this, this sounds a little bit flippant, but it's it's kind of the it's kind of the Pokemon effect. If people are mm. motivated to go to um, uh, to spend large amounts of their their day uh, collecting information on fictional creatures, it's not too much of a push to ask them to do the same thing with real real living things. Mm-hmm. And and you do see, and I have seen uh, that once you you introduce some of these apps and platforms, it does give a, a, a fantastic tool to get people directly interested. And what you can easily do is, from that is if, you're, if, you, if you communicate it right and you motivate people right, you can get them to do more than counting or, or spotting birds. But it does become fascinating if you know you can go look in close to a, a, a tree branch and see all of the creatures that are, mm-hmm. uh, that are there and, and, and photograph them. I think there's also the potential that way to really get people interested in in the diversity of life in itself rather than the more obviously um, charismatic 
creatures. I think it is a lot about the interface as well. You know, um, there was a study done. This goes some way back now, uh, maybe somewhere somewhere in the early two thousands, I think, by Bomford and colleagues at uh, Cambridge, and they were looking at how. British school kids, well, how well British school kids knew their Pokemon characters, which you mentioned just now, and comparing that to how well they knew um, very common species of uh, British wildlife, you know, foxes and badgers and, and things like that. And I think most of them did know the foxes and the badgers, but as soon as, as soon as it got a bit less familiar than that, their knowledge just dropped off and the Pokemon characters won hands down. Yeah. So, so I think that uh, my, my personal view on that is that the the more you can get to, I mean, at least for some people, the, the closer you can get to that kind of experience, you know, the, the excitement of, of collecting new new characters and that, that sort of uh, psychology, uh, you know, the more some people might be interested in the, in the endeavor. We've spoken a bit about the, you know, the problems behind conservation communication and, and a little bit about the solutions now as well. But no discussion these days would be complete without mention of the, the dreaded coronavirus. Uh, what's your take on how COVID-19 and you know the way that it's changing the way we do everything these days, uh, how do you think that will uh, influence what we are talking about? The you know the communication of of conservation and general perceptions of conservation out in the public. Yeah, I mean it, it's obviously it, it's very difficult to get a sense of that while we're still in the middle of it. You know, it's like you have to imagine yourself coming out of the the storm before um, <laughs> trying to evaluate it while the while the the wind and the rains uh, <laughs> lashing down, but I think there are a few things that we can at least speculate and, and potentially I think, frankly, it can work in, in different directions on the, to say it as positive given the context, but as the potential longer term positive impact, I think there, there has been during this crazy period in some ways a, a, a sense of people's awareness of the connections with nature uh, increasing and it, it and it comes in different in different ways. Partly, I think, as a kind of broad sense, there is a feeling that in some ways, what's happening here is should be teaching us lessons about uh, humanity's relationship with nature, even if it's expressed in in, in fairly generalized ways. There's almost a, you know, I hate to say this, but there's almost a, a feeling of is this nature's payback in some way. So channeling that. That view of a kind of recognition of of, of where we are and assumptions of of uh, our relationship with the environment. I think that's a there's been some pretty powerful things that have that have gone on in this period that in way very unpredictable ways I think could have an impact. Some mm -hmm. some of them have been you know and, and very well uh, aired in uh, in media and conversations around the world of some of these extraordinary impacts where suddenly people are seeing nature return to urban environments just because of the shutting down of human activity. I mean, that in itself has had a pretty amazing impact, water suddenly becoming cleaner and so on. And so in, in that you know, really relatively short period of a, this massive slowdown of human activity, it, it helps to emphasize both how much human activity is impacting nature, because we've you know, suddenly with that just a little break, uh, we can see some aspects of it coming back. But then it also demonstrates the relatively short-term benefits you can get from just easing off on our longer term on on the pressures we're putting on on biodiversity. So in that sense, I think it's 
has the potential longer term for really showing people what's possible when the impacts of human activity are uh, are reduced, and also then what that means to us personally to see some of the the wildlife returning. So mm-hmm. I think how much that lasts and 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 you know how real that is longer term in terms of the communication issue, it's yeah too early to say. I think. You know, the area where I think we'd really have to be cautious is that there is some aspect of our new, new normal, what we're, we're the way that we're, we're living our lives now, which, if take, taken the wrong way, could really set us back. I mean, for example, if people are going to be nervous about going on public transport, that then mm-hmm. leads to a huge, you know, a relative increase in, in people using private cars. Hopefully, it mean more bikes and walking as well. But you know, you could see, you could see some negative impacts there because of the you know the obviously the, the onward impacts in terms of uh, of pollution and, and and contribution to climate change from if we do move away from public transport. Um, but then in other ways as well, where if the you know because of the absolutely critical issues for, for uh, facing. Well, uh, national and, and and global economies that, in a sense, an, an an easy or a natural response to that could be that we can't afford to carry on with the same sort of regulations and environmental uh, considerations in whether it's building or, or or industries. There could be a temptation actually to remove what's been. A real advance in terms of uh, our cleaning up of industrial processes, um, because there'll be so much that the, the, the huge priority that's going to be to build back. I think that we'll need to really probably fight against what could be some quite negative tendencies mm. if we go back to a, just a, a narrow view of growth, where we just need to get the economy running without uh, considering some of the the negative impacts on on biodiversity. So it's yeah, it's 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 really it's impossible to say which which of those two trends will dominate, and and, and so it's much more complicated than I just outlined. But um, I think we can we can sort of see some potential positives and negatives from uh, what what will come out of this. It's like a massive unintentional experiment, and, and most of all a psychological experiment because. What matters most, uh, you know, coming out of it will be behavior change, as you alluded to from various different angles there. You know, it all depends on what we learn from it and how we cooperate to move uh, forward. And I guess that, you know, there'll be sort of lots of uh, relatively mini experiments in different parts of the world, you know, according to how different countries, for example, and even uh, at the subnational level, how, how responses uh, vary. And then I suppose there'll be good and bad case studies that come out of that. But as you say, at this stage, there are just so many potential positives and so many potential negatives uh, that it's hard to sum them up. It's just a huge task. Yeah, yeah. One other uh, positive, I guess, or potential positive, and quite a big one, is is uh, the fact that, you know, under lockdown, under various sort of levels of lockdown, people have apparently been taking to uh, the trails uh, more than they used to. So people who who would ordinarily not very, spend very much time in nature are spending a bit more time in nature. And obviously that, that has potential impact. You know, just having too many people in one place can be a, a problem. But I think from a point of view of, of influence on people's thinking, the literature suggests that that's, that's good for conservation. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. And I, I think that is really is 
one of the uh, the positive things. And mm-hmm. and I, you know, I don't know, you know, again, all this all turns out to be so 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 anecdotal. But in in many many experiences that people have and and, and stories that you hear, just the the change in in terms of bringing people together, whether it's extended families or neighborhoods, I think just having been faced by this very immediate crisis, there has been an extraordinary amount of people suddenly being more aware of the other people around them and and responding appropriately in, in you know, kindness uh, in supporting particularly, in, you know, obviously in particular el- elderly neighbors or relatives. And who knows what does that in some way scale up to uh, higher levels of solidarity and compassion um, at different scales? Because so much of what issues such as biodiversity do end up being about global solidarity. So impossible to know, but maybe that would be some other impact uh, that uh, that we see coming out of um, the pandemic. So, Tim, apart from your role at uh, GBIF, uh, you've also been centrally responsible for something called the Global Biodiversity Outlook. Yeah, so the Global Biodiversity Outlook series are documents that are published every five years, more or less, and they are the, they're the flagship publication of the UN Convention that deals with biodiversity, so it's the CBD, the Convention on Biological diversity and they're intended to be periodic bringing together of the the state of world action uh, around biodiversity with a particular emphasis since it it comes from a UN convention on how the action of of governments but also other sectors business and the NGO sector how that collective action can be summarized in a general outlook. So it's not carrying out new research, but they're looking at the best available information from uh, various indicators and summary of, of the research that's, that's been done and reports that are coming uh, from uh, national governments and in a relatively compact document giving um, an outline of, of the state of play. My recollection is that it was it's very graphics rich, lots of icons and pictures and uh, diagrams and that kind of thing. And not just that, I think you can have plenty of pictures and diagrams without being simple. Uh, but the way that they're portrayed, I think I find quite straightforward and quite easy to uh, to read. Yeah, a lot of it has been around helping to understand, first of all, what the what indicators are telling us about trends, and, and also in helping to influence the way that uh, targets and strategies are set. So, for example, the, the, the third Global Biodiversity Outlook, which was the first one I was involved in, which came out in, in 2010, was in many ways the, the background document which helped to frame the targets that were set at that time and the, the biodiversity strategy from, that, from the last decades so of 2011 to 2020 that's the meeting, the, the conference that, that set those targets in, in 2010, was able to use the, the analysis from GBO3, the Global Biodiversity Outlook, uh, published just before that, to, to help to frame the targets. And then 
the last one, so the fourth one that you mentioned, which actually came out in 2014, was a kind of a, a halfway checkpoint. So, okay, we set these targets in, in 2010. How are we doing as we get towards the middle of the, of the decade? And then the one that's coming out now, the fifth outlook, is to a large extent looking at, well, how did we do? Uh, what are the um, uh, what, what are, what's the overall evaluation of, of of how the world did or did not reach or get close to the the twenty targets that were set in twenty ten? But then also looking at what the current state of knowledge is telling us about our options for the for the future for the next ten and indeed the next thirty years. So it's it's that through through that kind of periodic series. It's helping to frame the you know, government setting of, of targets and the strategy for meeting the biodiversity crisis. Can you tell us what the sort of short message is from the GBO5? How, how well are we doing or how badly are we doing? So the broad message is that the targets that were set for 2020, 10 years ago, have generally speaking not been met. That's frankly not going to come as any any great surprise because there was a this very large report, the Global Assessment of of IPBES, which came out in in uh, 2019, which which pretty much said that. But this was, if you like, a, a final and up to date evaluation, and all of that remains true. Also, that on the whole, things continue to move in a in a bad direction in terms of uh, uh, extinction risk and and uh, and species populations. But the other side of it is that there has been, as we discussed before, significant measurable positive impacts from the activity that has been carried out by governments and and many more groups around the world in the next decade. For example, as we I mentioned before, you can we can say that conservation actions have prevented some extinctions in the uh, in the past years. We uh, also know uh, that there has been a, a, an impressive increase in the area of land and ocean that is set aside specifically and legally for uh, for conservation purposes. So that's one of the uh, the areas where we know there's been progress. There's also in the area of, uh, for example, being much more aware of and identifying the risks areas from invasive alien species as a very significant conservation threat. Um, there's been a lot of work done to to establish risk assessments. And in some cases, particularly on islands, uh, successful examples of where well-planned uh, action has has reduced extinction risk. So there's, you know, there are there are um, areas of, uh, of of success that can be documented, and we can we do that in in uh, in the outlook. The other message, I guess, is that when when we when we look at into the future, based on the latest models and scenarios, looking at how different choices and, um, and different policy mixes will, will affect biodiversity, we can say that it is still possible not only to 
slow and eventually end the uh, the loss of biodiversity, but actually start to bring it back uh, through 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 restoration. And this is a phrase that's that's now becoming fairly commonly known within this particular world, which is bending the curve, where if you look at the overall trend related to biodiversity, things are still going down in the wrong direction. And at some point, the question is, what do we, how can we get that curve eventually to at least to flatten and then to move upwards in terms of bringing back some of the diversity that we've, uh, that we've lost? And the overall message is, yes, it is possible, frankly, within the next 10 years or so, to start bending that curve, but only through a combination of actions, each of which is necessary, but none of which is sufficient on its own. And that will include getting climate change under control, is absolutely you know, a prerequisite for all that. It's uh, looking at uh, the food system, both in terms of how food is produced, and the way that land is used critically to produce food in, in, in global agriculture and our, our consumption habits, uh, diets, our choices for, for, for diets and the uh, amount of food that currently goes to waste. So these, these are uh, some of the, the key factors, plus conservation in, 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 a, in a wide range of different activities. And so that means continuing to step up not just the amount of land that is set aside for conservation, uh, but first of all, making sure that those protected areas really are protected rather than just being protected on paper, but also then looking at protection of biodiversity in the broader landscape. So not just thinking of conservation being in these, these islands of protected areas, which might add up to a large number but if they're not connected with each other, then a lot of biodiversity is going to be is going to be lost. So, it's the overall message, I guess, is it's a kind of a if I can use this phrase, a sort of yes we can message, uh, in terms that that it is still possible to meet that that vision of of going halfway through this century and seeing a society that's somehow in harmony with nature, but only with with a pretty radical set of steps. Okay, that's all for this episode. Have a look at the show notes if you'd like to read more about the work of the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. And also if you're interested in the brand new fifth edition of the Global Biodiversity Outlook, which was released on the 15th of September, 2020. That's just a couple of days before this podcast was released, this episode. In the show notes, you'll also find a summary of the topic we discussed today and a bit about Tim and various links that uh, that might be useful to you, including to the apps that were discussed in the interview. Next time, my guest will be David Duthie, who's a conservationist with a long career in the United Nations, among other things. And we'll be examining some of the assertions that are frequently made but seldom explained about the links between nature and zoonotic diseases like COVID-19. This should be really interesting and, of course, very relevant given the ubiquitousness of the pandemic these days. So I do hope you can join us.